Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Okay, ladies. So I have a topic for us today. I've been really thinking about this a lot, about how nobody's taking my trauma into account. And when I say my trauma, I'm talking about the family member, about how there's so much unsolicited advice. There's so many things that other people tell us we should or we shouldn't do. And yet those people have no idea what I, as an ally or a family member, is going through internally with a loved one's substance use disorder. They think they know, but they have absolutely no idea what's going on inside of me. And so all of this advice and what they consider to be support can actually be incredibly painful. What do you think? I agree. And to go back on the term trauma, family members are probably super underdiagnosed with traumatic symptoms, post-traumatic symptoms. They've survived so many amazing explosions and crises, and they live in terror that it's going to repeat or it's going to be worse. It's a lot to hang on to yourself with and through. So, you know, the work for us as family members is to find a way to slow all that down and to maybe add a little bit of logic to what's going on, just, just enough so that we have a different reaction and a, the semblance of a plan of how we're going to respond. When we know these, this trauma, we know this trouble exists for us, is, is possible, is dangerously close even perhaps. How do we calm that down and find moments of peace in the expression of, of that kind of a life? I'm going to say a little bit about actual trauma and what, it, what we're talking about when we say trauma. In layperson's ta- terms, trauma is when bad things happen to you. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. It could be that you know, trauma could be a car accident or a big T trauma that we talk about is a single incident, horrible thing. You were in some horrible weather event or some violent act happened to you. Or um, there's this horrible moment that you witnessed and experienced and were involved with either to you or you witnessed. Those are the big T's. And then small T traumas are the ones that continue on. Okay, some of them are feel like they're minor, or, but they add up over time. And then there's the ongoing trauma that if you're living or you're engaged with somebody who has substance use issues, you have long-term trauma. And then I just want to add this other layer, which is childhood trauma. So that if you are subjected to any kind of violence or neglect or witnessing terrible things happening in your childhood, then that's something that you will be carrying into your adulthood. And that adds to your reactivity in the moment. Okay. And I'm just, I'm just going to explain that. In, in a quick way, which is that when we're children, 
the way I like to describe it is we have this video that gets made so that everything that we've seen, everything that we've experienced, everything that we thought that we felt and felt as a child gets put onto this video. And I'm using video because it's the newest way to say it. And what happens is that if there's trauma, there's trauma on that video. And we have this ability to basically not plug into the video. We just live our lives. And then what happens is something in our current situation presses the play button. Something about what's happening now reminds us of the past and the play button gets pressed. And what post-traumatic stress is, is when that button gets pressed. It could be in a dream that, or a nightmare. It could be that you're walking down the street and something reminds you it. And in the case of having a loved one, it could be that there's some kind of behavior of interaction or no interaction that presses the play button. And what happens is once you have that button pressed, all of this old way of being and thinking and responding comes right up into this moment. And whatever's happening in the moment gets perceived through that lens. And you are actually not present. You are living through the trauma and you're not present. The part of your brain that could think is not activated. You are in reactivity. And that's a post-traumatic stress event. So you want to keep that in mind because it affects how you play out your current life if you're not looking at the trauma. Can I also add a few pieces in there? Just because I also think that people don't take into account that family members also have other health, mental health issues, or even physical health issues that are contributing to their behavior, their own response to their loved one with substance use disorder. A family member might also experience depression, might experience anxiety, maybe bipolar disorder. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are being thrown into the pot. And when we're giving unsolicited advice or we're telling family members, even on the professional level, you have to do this, kick them out, throw them out, don't do this, you're enabling, you're this, you're that. When the, the community is doing that, they're not taking into account the reasons why the family member is struggling to follow through on those particular pieces that you think that they should or they shouldn't do. And oftentimes it's these things, it's the mental health issues, it's the trauma, it's the intergenerational trauma, it's the learned responses as a parent, or it's the community that has told you this is the response you have to have uh, when you're a parent. People aren't taking that into account, and then they don't understand why the family member won't do or can't do what it is that they're expected to do. And also throw this one added piece in there, and it makes it incredibly difficult for that family member to actually hold true to boundaries or to follow through on a lot of the things that we're talking about. And that is the wonderful thing of love. And deeply, deeply loving, having a loving relationship with this individual. And that's not taken into account. And I would actually say that the more we don't take those things into account, the harder it is for the family member to set down those healthy boundaries that are going to help them help their loved one. Well, and this goes back to having awareness of the dynamic of what's going on. 
And that's the most essential part that we're asking you over and over again when we're talking about this model, which is that the more you know about yourself, especially, especially yourself, because we make up all kinds of stories about the other person, which may or may not be correct. But the person that you have the ability to shift is yourself. And so you need to take all of these factors into account. It's not that you're resistant or that you're not capable or that this is too hard or that there's no way that this is going to happen. It's that we're complicated beings. And so like well, like Lori's saying, do you have your own mental health issues? Are you taking care of them? Are you getting, are you taking medication? Are you in treatment? Are you dealing with your own trauma? Because if you are doing the people are like, well, what do I do for my loved one? What do I do for my loved ones? And we always start with, how are you doing? What are you doing to take care of yourself? And it seems like, oh, that's a diversion. This is an emergency over here. And I, I just want to point out one really, really important fact is that almost everybody that we're working with has this formula of who's got it worse. And so your response is going to be, Who's got it worse? I'm going to put out the fire as opposed to the smoke. So if you're your loved one who is very, very good at creating fires and being on fire and being a mess, they look like their issues trump everything that's going on with us. And what we're here to say is that unless you start focusing back on yourself, you can't put out the fire. You know, you can't have any any kind of a, any kind of effect on that if you're a mess yourself. And if you have the awareness, hopefully you see the smoke before you see the fire. You have some awareness that you are very reactive to smoke and fire. And you've worked through a few ideas of how you're gonna take care of yourself during the smoke and fire. And, and hopefully it just stays smoke, right? That you're able to disentangle it and either stop it from becoming a fire or protect yourself and understand that this is a pattern that goes on when there's fire and I need to just sit back with myself and make sure that I'm okay and that I don't end up adding to the problem or that taking it out on myself or anybody else, but that I can get through these moments when there is spikes in trauma, spikes in, in drama, right, which invades many lives of people with addiction and their families. So it's about, Lori so often says that slow it down. You've seen it so many times, now slow it down, become more aware and start to pick it apart and figure out what's going to trigger you to remember, uh-oh, this is this. I've seen this before, right? Go ahead, Kayla. The one that I, I really want to use this fire analogy because it really fits. People who are fire personnel do not run into the fire without making an assessment. Okay, you do not see people in the fire department getting out of the truck and running into the building naked. You know, they actually stop and put their and what is it called? The, their outfits on. <laughs> sorry, sorry for those of you who are professionals. They they actually have a fire gear that they are putting on from head to toe. Okay. And then if there's really a lot of smoke, they're going to have an air tank on them and an ability to, and a gas mask on so they can walk in. They're walking in with tools. They're walking in with hatchets. They're walking in with whatever tools that they need for that particular fire. And the other thing is that they are not walking in alone. 
So those are all the assessments that are being made before they walk in. That's all the preparation that's going in. And I feel like when we have loved ones that are in what we perceive as danger, which is all the time, then we want to throw ourselves in to save them. And we're not in a position to do that unless we are completely prepared to go in there. And that's what Allies in Recovery does, which is you want to prepare yourself with the tools, with protection, with taking care of yourself, with having awareness, with doing assessments about what is happening and what your part is and what's the best response in that particular situation, which is what you're talking about, Dominique, is slow it down so that you're not just throwing yourself into this horrible situation. You're actually doing an assessment of it and coming up with the tools and using the tools on a regular basis. You're not just picking up these tools when you're going into the, the crisis. You need to be using them every day so that they become familiar. And I, I love to use the piano analogy and they call it practicing the piano. You're practicing it even when you're getting good, you're still practicing every day because that's what actually gives you the skills when it's time to actually perform. So you want to be using everything that we're talking about on a regular basis. And it's much easier to do this when your system is calm. And then that becomes part of this kind of like um, unconscious knowledge that you have that will come out much more effectively when you need it. You know, listening to you, Kayla, there was something you said that I I thought was genius. And I wish that a lot of people would would change the wording when they say you need to take care of yourself. Because just like what you what you said, you said something about that sounds very, I, I don't know what 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 it was, but it sounds very like disingenuous or or very like putting a band-aid over it taking care of myself. Right. And I always hated that when, when I would kind of put forth, you know, some struggle that I was going through with my loved one and everybody around me would say, well, but you need to take, make sure you're taking care of yourself. And I was like, Oh, go away, leave me alone. But I, I wish maybe the wording would change to something you said, because you said you need to understand yourself better in order to help your loved one. And I'm like, oh, that's it. That's it in a nutshell. If I understand myself better, if I understand the patterns, right, Dominique, the patterns like coming from module three on the Allies in Recovery website, where you're you're trying to identify my own patterns and my own reactions and understanding those better, that's going to make me be a little bit more or help me to be a little bit more helpful to others in my life, specifically my loved one with SUD. And so I wish I wish people would say, you need to understand yourself a little bit better. Yes, that that's the beginning of self-care. And what happens is everything falls under that. Because if somebody says, you need to, you're depressed, you should go for a jog. If they said that to me, it would be like, yeah, great. You know, then watch the shin splints and knee pain and, you know, plantar fasciitis, you know, like literally that's everything that's happened to me when I run. Running is not my go-to. That's why making suggestions doesn't work because for me, I have this whole list of things that I absolutely love to do. And for one of them is jigsaw puzzles, stupid thing, right? But when I want to be brainless and mindless and let go and have my Calgon take me away moments, I do a jigsaw puzzle. I tell somebody else that they're like, oh, 
jigsaw puzzles. Ah, I hate that. So that's that's where advice doesn't work. It's more like, okay, what we want to talk about when we're talking about this understanding ourselves is there's a couple of things that we're looking for. One is what do I do to calm myself down when I'm feeling anxious and activated? You need to figure that out. There's a 20,000 things on that list. You're going to pick out your your ways of doing it. Are you going to do yoga? Are you going to talk to a friend? Are you going to watch, you know, a, a horror movie? For some people, that's what they do. That's one thing. And then there's also like, what do I do to make myself feel like I'm taking care of myself, which is different, which is, you know, how do I do the healthy things for my system? How do I make myself feel better? What am I doing that actually improves my health mentally and physically? And also what am I doing to, to stop creating harm in myself? Very different for every human being. Okay. So there's those kind of things. And then when there's a crisis, what's my toolbox, which I think is a huge aspect of self-care, because if I have things to choose from, then I'm not just going back to my old way. I'm really like, oh, maybe I'll try reflective listening. Maybe I'm going to try asking questions. Maybe I'm going to have a list of resources that calms my system down. And I'm going to just mention, oh, I have some resources and then stop. Maybe I'm going to practice a tool that I learned uh, off of the modules. And then I'm going to see how it goes and then actually take it apart afterwards to see what went well and what didn't go well, which is another tool, which is evaluating what you are doing. You, the, the two questions are what, what worked and what didn't work, what went well and what didn't go well. And then it's not how did I fail or I screwed up. It's more like, oh, based on that information, what am I going to do differently the next time? That's a tool. Can I add some more basic tools too that I, a lot of people forget about? When we're in a perceived crisis and we feel like, oh my gosh, you know, if I don't respond, everything is just going to fall apart, which typically when it comes to substance use disorder often happens late at night, right? So some of the tools in your toolbox for taking care of yourself could be as simple as making sure that you eat, making sure that you get enough sleep, or if you can't get enough sleep, get more, get the most amount of sleep that you can versus, you know, maybe you can't get eight hours of sleep, but maybe you can get five hours of sleep versus three hours of sleep. Well, as an insomniac, I want to add one thing to your sleep thing, which is that if I can't sleep, because some of us just don't sleep well, it's my thing. What counts as sleep is meditation. So you instead of laying there torturing yourself about what needs to happen and that you can't sleep, if you put on a med meditation a a podcast or whatever a tape, I'm trying not to date myself. Um, if you do that, that actually provides your brain with the kind of rest that it actually needs. And that counts. Just wanted to say that. So go on, Lori. Kind of piggybacking on what you're saying, doing things like I often will turn the television on low on something that's very boring because I know it'll help my mind drift off and, and will allow me to sleep better. Or I'll put headphones on with an audible book. And again, it's oftentimes with like this voice that's just kind of a drone, right? And it just lulls me. So, okay, I'm not thinking about anything. It pulls my mind away from those ruminating thoughts. I get a little bit more sleep. 
more sleep than I would have if I didn't have the headphones on or if I didn't have the television on to kind of put me in a meditative state. So I, I think it's really important for people to also remember that even the most basic of things are considered self-care, that it isn't always you having to have to go off and do something, you know, uh, have your nails done or do a peaceful meditation class for 60 minutes. It might not be that. It might be in the moment. You know what? I haven't eaten in about six hours. It's really important that I put some food into my stomach because I'm sure that's contributing to my own anxiety. Right. And each one of us will learn what that is for ourselves as well. Dominique, you were going to say something? A slightly different topic, but in terms of solution to trauma, trauma caused by years perhaps of life with a loved one with addiction. You know, what we train you in here at Allies in Recovery is a way to connect. And what the folks in psychology and popular psychology now are really pointing to is the need to connection, for connection in order to heal trauma and to connect with the person who's caused the trauma, right? That's what we're asking you to do. And so if we can gently and incrementally improve how you're connecting, your ability to connect with your loved one in a safe way, in a way that's nurturing instead of here comes obligations and crisis and disruption in my life, but a safe, connected way to address your loved one, you heal and your loved one, it turns out connection seems to be very important in the recovery of addiction. So right in the beginning, right throughout all of what we do, we focus on that interaction between you and your loved one and that dynamic and tease that apart and show you how to maybe improve on it little by little so that you actually heal your trauma. And when you feel it, when you hear a family come back and say, that kind of worked, you know, I, I wasn't sarcastic and I kept my mouth shut and he stayed in the room and we had a moment. Nobody said anything, but we clearly had a moment. That is so exciting and is the beginning, I think, of, of what we can provide with allies. So thank you both. It's what we've learned over time and have really evolved in our understanding of how it is that we want you to understand yourselves and how critically important that is as the beginning block. From there, you can connect and from connection, you can heal. And from that connection, your loved one can heal and everybody will move to get better. We'll, we'll go to treatment, we'll go to wellness exercises and uh, other activities, right? So it all starts in that interaction. Yeah, and I'm gonna add one thing to what you're saying because that was a really important point, the shift in perception which is a lot of what we talk about. So I'm listening to you and I'm thinking to myself, one of the biggest shifts that needs to be made is that when something does work, it has to count, okay? Because what happens is we look at these positive moments and if we don't have the out, the larger outcome, then we erase it and it doesn't count as, oh, that didn't really work because they're not in treatment or they're not getting any better. And what the other psychology the latest thing is what you look at in a positive way, reframing and also being grateful for these tiny little moments actually accumulate and it changes your inner chemistry 
so that it actually is more receptive to the positive and it's, it's not as reactive. So that is a very, very important healing technique is looking at the positive, allowing yourself to acknowledge that it does count and it matters. And that that also what leads to the long-term change, because I think everybody's looking for these big changes and I don't believe in big changes. I think they happen in these tiny little microscopic moments and they accumulate over time sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they add up and they become something. And so every single thing that we do and our loved ones are doing that's positive counts. And we need to see it that way. And that will automatically change their trauma response because the trauma says everything is terrible and that doesn't really matter. That was nothing. And it's the opposite. I also think that the community around the family member the people that are impacting the family member who is now trying to help their loved one with substance use disorder. What we're trying to do is we're trying to help the family member learn the craft skills, learn all of the stuff that we're talking about so they can craft their loved one, right? I also think the community, the larger community needs to learn how to craft the family member. So I think that like when I hear uh, a lot of unsolicited advice, I'm often thinking, no, you need to step back and you need to start asking me about what I'm capable of doing. And, and also like, I think that it's very much a craft thing to narrow down the boundary that you wanna set, set down because you wanna make it uh, something that is more manageable and more measurable, right? You don't wanna have these really big boundaries. And why don't you wanna have these really big general boundaries? Because it's really difficult for the family member to follow through on that boundary. So oftentimes what happens is these people giving unsolicited advice, they believe the family member has to set up a really big boundary, like kick them out, don't let them stay with you anymore, you can't feed them. And you're not taking into account that maybe the family member can't follow through on that boundary, or it's going to be very difficult for them to follow through on that boundary. So instead, what you do is you say, hey, I know it's really difficult for you, you know, that you're not considering not feeding them. What is a boundary that you think you could set and you could follow through on? Is it just a matter of not sending your loved one money for food? Is there something where, you know, maybe you have food delivered instead of giving them money when they're calling you up for money? Is that something you would consider doing? And so for me, it's a matter of the community and the people around the family members have to learn craft in order to craft the family member who can then learn about crafting their loved one. It's sort of like how we have to motivate the family member to motivate the loved one. But we're all part of something larger than ourselves. And that's what craft is about. It's like we're not looking at people as these isolated individuals. We're all we're all connected. It's just like, how do we actually improve the connection? How do we make the connection positive? How do we make the connection helpful and effective for everybody to heal? Because that's, I think that's the new way that we're looking at it. It's not treatment in the old fashioned sense, it's healing. And the more we're coming from a healing place, the more effective we're going to be. We started out with the fundamental craft model 
And what we've done is changed it from a therapist office-based model or therapy-based model or clinician-based model into a community-based model so that this is no longer happening in a clinician's office. This is happening in groups with community-based members, with family members. And what we've done is we've taken that model and we've basically expanded it so that it's more in-depth it's more continuous and that we do not believe that in 12 weeks, that's not enough time. This is ongoing. It's evolutionary. We want people to have the support to integrate it. And we've never seen people have 12 weeks and everything's all done and taken over. So we're here so that family members could engage in this process of their loved ones going in and out of treatment, taking years to get into treatment, and also learning the skills on a very, very regular basis so that they're integrating it into their lives and they're making it second nature for themselves. And it's not only affecting their interaction with the substance using loved one, but with themselves and everyone else. And we have a very, our focus is much more on the family member understanding themselves, understanding their patterns, understanding their reactivity, and then having a toolbox that they get to practice and modify and practice and modify over months and months and years and years. And we're here with them throughout that entire process. Well said. Great conversation, ladies. Again, today, really enjoyed it. And I look forward to the upcoming wonderful conversations we're going to have with one another. Thank you to all our listeners. Make sure and go to the Allies in Recovery website, www.alliesinrecovery.net, and take a look at our 10-day challenge. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.